Bibles of 1 Timothy. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We've been walking through this book, this letter of 1 Timothy, understanding God's instruction manual for the church. We've said this is a manual, this is a blueprint, this is a playbook. This is what God tells us. Here's how the church is supposed to function. Here's what we're supposed to be doing. And the key verse we've been looking at is right there, 1 Timothy 3.15. It says, I have written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy, says, here it is, Timothy. Here's how to guide your, the church. Here's what God wants to happen. Here's how... The church is supposed to behave. And last week we closed out chapter 3 and we saw that Paul's instructions were all about Jesus. You go to the very end of chapter 3, six very dramatic, truthful statements about Jesus. And so Paul's writing this letter saying, here is how the church is supposed to behave and how the church is supposed to act and how we're supposed to do things so that we point people towards who? Jesus. That's what this world needs. That's what we need. We need Jesus. And he says, here's what we're going to look at. Now, today as we begin chapter 4, Paul starts to get extremely practical in his instructions. Today we see he's going to tell us, be aware and be focused. Be on guard and be focused. Watch out. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 as we see a father's warning. You say a father, why is the father's warning? Well, from our heavenly father, this is a warning, but also because Paul was kind of like a father figure to Timothy. He was a spiritual father in the faith. <coughs> so here's the instructions <coughs> that he gives. Chapter 4, verse 1. The spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars who consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Some straw warning here, verse 1, he says, some will abandon the faith. That means there's a warning that as we get closer to the Lord's return, some are going to walk away from their belief when they claimed, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's my Savior. Some will walk away. And Jesus warned his disciples about these end times. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus said, For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. There's going to be some people try to draw you away to go, This thing about Jesus is not exactly accurate. And Paul leaves the... Uh, the Ephesian elders, when he left the church in Ephesus and warns them with these words, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. So he's warning from people from within. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. Eyes wide open. Watch out. Because there are some who are going to try to distract from what the mission is. What do we just say? In chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, the writings and instructions of 1 Timothy are appoint people to who? 
Jesus. And so he comes and says, there is a warning here. Be on guard because some people are going to try to turn it and distract us. So we're not pointing people towards Jesus. Paul gives three distinctives of false doctrine in our text. First, he says they are demonic in origin. Did you know that the devil has doctrines? Do you know the devil has a playbook? He has his own little way that he is working. He has demons who are deceiving spirits sent to pull people away from the truth. And this was already beginning to happen in Paul's day. And Paul warns us that not all doctrines are sound doctrines. Some doctrines are demonic in origin. They come from the evil one. And some people, they say, I don't know if I believe that spirit world stuff. I'm not sure. You, Brian, there's really some things going on that, that we can't see. And there's really some battles between God's army and Satan's army. And Paul's saying, yes, sir, there is. Yes, ma'am, there is. It is happening all around us. See, the devil doesn't necessarily fight the church. The devil tries to join the church. He tries to sneak within the church. And he tries to come within, and Paul says, there's some warning. He can do more damage from the inside than he could ever do from the outside. And so he starts sneaking in and going, how can I get some things going on? How can I get some things happening inside this fellowship within these Christians to get them distracted, especially if you can get people to believe and teach his demonic doctrines? Especially if you can get people to embrace false doctrines. Demonic doctrine always raises questions about the Bible. Demonic teaching, when someone minimizes the authority of the Word of God, when they eliminate the final source of truth or standard by which someone can know right from wrong, when they start to question, is the Bible really true? They no longer recognize God as a sovereign authority for truth, then any man's opinion becomes as good as another for a source of right or wrong. There is one solid foundation that the church must stand upon, and that is the Word of God and nothing else. In church, when you start hearing preachers and pulpits, people in the pulpit or writing start saying, yeah, we believe most of the Word of God, but maybe not all of it. Let's set some of it aside. Was Jesus really the only way, or is there some other ways? Demonic doctrine always raises question about Jesus and His Word, always. And we should watch out for that in the church. If you're in a growth group, you're in a Bible study, you're in a one-on-one discussion and someone says, well, I know that's written in the Bible, but come on, that's such a long time ago. Does that really apply to today? Does it really matter? We, our, our warning signals should go off and go, why are they asking those questions? What's happening here? God's who? People say, I, I'm not sure about this virgin birth thing. I mean, did this girl really get pregnant she was a virgin by the spirit did that really happen i'm not sure if that's real the atonement his blood atonement that bloody that that bodily resurrection i mean come on how real can that be that someone's put inside of a tomb and then three days later walking you're did that really happen no i think he just kind of fell asleep for three days and then he kind of shook his body and woke him up no people start questioning that kind of stuff our red flags our warning lights should go off and go oh hold on I'm not sure if they understand the gospel is there some demonic teaching that's starting to slide in? We need to be aware of anyone who de-emphasizes Jesus. We need to be aware, does, 
of someone who does not believe in the inerrant word of God or mixes in other teachings and say, well, I understand Jesus teaches this, but this faith group teaches this, and I learned this on television, and so let's just blend them all together. You know, we did this thing, uh, which to me really grossed me out, uh, this this challenge this summer when we did kids' camp. Y'all remember that challenge? If you were part of that, it was the, um, the blender. You know, they took the blender. What is that called? Smoothie challenge. They took all these gross foods. Well, they, no, they weren't gross. They were good. Bananas, that's good by itself. A pickle, it was good by itself. Ketchup and mustard. And, and they had all this stuff. And they had the smoothie challenge. They put them in a blender and blended them all up. And then some people drank it. I was about ready to throw up in the back. You know, that happens in our society today with our Christianity. Oh my goodness, I read this little article on Facebook. Man, it was so good. Oh my goodness, I listened to this teacher on television, and he was so good. Oh, I listened to my preacher, and he said a couple of things. He was okay, but, uh, you know, I listened. Oh, and I read this book over here. And oh, there's this talk show person over here. And we put it all in a blender. And we let it affect our soul. What happens, we should say, I'm going to throw up. So Paul's warning us about, he's saying there is one source of truth, church. One source of truth. One source of truth. That's Jesus and his word. And we must not divert from that. Because when we do, then we're allowing demonic teaching to work in. So Paul warns of demonic teaching. And then he says they're deceitful in operation in verse 2. He says teachers will be hypocrites. In other words, they're insincere. Well, yeah, that's what it says, but I'm really not going to do it. Their motives will be suspect. They really won't be interested in leading people in Jesus. They're more interested in their own personal gain. Cults never lead people to Jesus. They always lead people away from Jesus. And our main job in this church is to lead people to Jesus. That's what we're about. Their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron, it says have been seared. The devil has burned his imprint on their consciences in a branding iron that that you can't even see the way of Jesus. They have no ethics anymore. They have no godly wisdom anymore. All they know is the wisdom that is all around us inside this world. And so we let that direct how we do church. And Paul's saying, you got to watch out for that. Because when we let demonic teaching in, and then we get deceitful in our operation, we're getting further and further away from what God wants the church to be. And so he's warning us Watch out for this stuff going on inside the church. And then he says they're distorted in their outcome, verse 3. He says they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Do you know marriage is a gift from God? Why would someone forbid them to marry? Oh, you can't be doing that. See, when God created every, everything, he repeatedly said, it is good. Created the stars and the moon and the animals, it's good. The water, it's good. The trees, it's good. And he saw man was alone. He said, that's not good. He said, that's not good. And so he made woman. And God created woman. And he said, I now institute marriage. Right there in the very beginning. And some people are saying, hey, marriage, that's no good. That's not of God. He also demanded that people abstain from certain meats. They were saying, listen, some of this food, stay away from that food, stay away from that food. That food's not good. Look what Acts chapter 10 says. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. 
He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by the four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure unclean. He's thinking back to, to the Jewish traditions and all the laws of, of the Jewish history. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, you might be healthier you're staying from certain foods. But let me just tell you, you're not going to be more spiritual. I know sometimes that's an attitude that carries around. Oh, you're eating that? Oh, oh, oh why are you eating that? And it goes beyond a health thing. It goes into, well, I'm, I'm a little more holy than you. You know, this is one reason why we pray before meals. Verse 4, right there, he says, put it, basically put everything to the test of the Word of God. He says, with prayer and thanksgiving. So words, you, when you stop and, and you sit down before that steak, or you sit down before that pizza, or you sit down before the big banana split, you say, thank you, Lord. It's okay. Everything's from Him. Thank you, God. And help me to go now walk an extra mile to burn off these calories. But by no means should we be judging one another or casting blame on one another and saying, oh my goodness, they're just not as holy as me because they're eating that or eating this. Now, some of us, we need to go on a salad diet. But that's between you and God. It has nothing to do with your neighbor or your friend or your preacher. That's between you and God. You eat whatever you want to eat. Just say thank you, God, as you do it. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, well, that's not of God. That's not of God. Put all that aside. Saying, you watch out for people who are doing that kind of thing, do you? People are creating all these kind of odd rules that go against the word of God is what he's talking about. So we see a father's wisdom, and then he gives us, or then, then we jump into the wisdom. He gives the warning and gives the wisdom. Verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. He says, listen, when you point these things out, the first five verses, you will prove yourself to be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Do you know we're all ministers in this room? Every single one of us in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you've taken on the role of being a minister of Jesus. And when you point these things out, and you're like, listen, this is what the word says, you're doing a good work. You're doing a good thing. Verse 6 says, nourished on the truths of faith. Nourished. We, we need to be nourished on the truths of faith. We need to be fed regular, sound doctrine. Good teaching of the word of God. Are you allowing that to be part of your life? How, how often are you nourishing upon the word of God? Is the only nourishment you get is Sunday when you come to Sunday morning? Because if you are, you're probably gr grossly malnutritioned when it comes spiritually because this needs to be a daily thing that we open up the word of god we engage in the word of god we need to be nourished first peter 2 2 says like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation the spiritual milk is to crave the word of god to crave the teaching of jesus we need to feed regularly every day the word of god into our lives in verse 7 he says have 
nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. In other words, stay away from the silly stuff that's meaningless, is what he's saying. So some people, he's saying, like to pick the bones instead of getting to the meat of the word of God. It's kind of like when people ask questions like, now, where did Cain get his wife? Does it really matter? I'm not really sure. It's not an important thing, but we make these things important. Or or things like, what kind of saw did Jesus do use in his father's carpenter shop? I don't think he used this all because actually the carpenter work was more like stone work, to tell you the truth. But it doesn't really matter. Does it really matter? We get all those kind of things. What day did Jesus get crucified on? Let's get in that debate. Because people get sidetracked with all these kind of debates. And Paul's saying, look, you've got to watch out for that stuff. Watch out for all the things that try to sidetrack you, try to get you off of what we're supposed to be doing. And we're supposed to be taking people and pointing them towards Jesus. He says, rather train yourself up to be godly in verse 7. You know what that word for train means? It means to exercise. In other words, go to the gym. Go to the gym of your spiritual life and exercise. Exercise to become godly. It takes practice. It takes repetition. It takes stumbling and fumbling, but it takes staying in the game. If you want to be a giant for God, then you got to spend time working on it. You want your faith to grow. You got to work at your faith to grow. You got to get in the Word. Church, Scripture tells us that our faith comes by what? By hearing. By hearing the Word of God. And so you've got to have a daily digest of the Word of God in your life. You've heard me say it before the way you begin your day is the way you'll live your day. You want to live for God, then start with God. Start with God in the morning, get in the Word, start reading the Word, start studying the Word, start understanding the Word, and don't just trust some preacher that's up on stage or someone you're watching on television or someone who's leading a Bible study or some book that you pick up and read about spiritual matters. Open up the Word of God and make it a daily practice. You say, I'm not doing that at all. I don't know how to do that. Start with five minutes a day. Start with five minutes a day. I would suggest you start in the book of John if you've never started, you're like, where do I begin? I love the book of John. It's about the life of Christ. You see the love of Jesus and just read a little bit of it five minutes a day and say, Lord, help my five minutes grow. Help my five minutes become seven minutes and 10 minutes and 15 minutes and 30 minutes where I just look forward to the time of work, to working out my spiritual life. Be in church. I cannot overemphasize this in today's culture. Every time you make a choice to get out of bed and come and worship together, you are honoring the Lord. Every single time you do this, Hebrews tells us, do not neglect the gathering together with other Christians. God works in this. God works in when you come in and there's a handshake shared, there's a hug that is shared, there is a prayer that is given, there is a a hug, there is a laugh, there is joking about UK football and basketball and all that relationship and fellowship that takes place. God does something in this. But every time you choose to say, I'm I'm staying in bed, I'm reading a newspaper, I'm I'm just chilling this morning, I'm going to the campground. Oh, I'm going to go fishing. Oh, I'm going to the golf course. Every time you choose that, you know who you're saying you want more control of your life? The the demonic ways of life. You're saying, Satan, you can have your way in me because I don't want to go train. I don't want to go to the gym today. This is like us getting up and going to the gym together. Now, we're not sweating, are we? 
But that's what we're doing. We're exercising together. We're exercising. Practice praying. You say, practice? Yeah, it takes practice. It takes practice to stop and get quiet before the Lord and say, Lord, I got to talk to you. What do I say? Hmm. For some of us, if you haven't done any much praying or you struggle in praying, here's my encouragement. Pick a spot and pick a time and meet God there every day. Pick a spot and pick a time and meet God there every day. It might be in your chair. One of the best things I did a couple years ago, I put a little table in my closet, moved my clothes out of the way and put a chair there so that every day I sit in that chair. Now, some days it's really filled and it's really full and some days I'm like, God, what am I doing here today? But you pick a spot and you pick a time and every single day you meet God and it's okay to sit there and say, God, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. And then you amazing, you start reading the word and you start talking to God a little bit, how that will start to grow. You gotta exercise. Physical training has some value. I mean, this is the only body we get. And you'll enjoy life a lot better. And you'll take, if you take care of your body. Actually, I think there's a correlation that if you start taking care of your physical body, it probably will help your spiritual life. If you take care of your spiritual life, it'll help your physical body. I think there's some of that that may work together. There's a sign that once read, or it does read, it says, when I feel like running, I walk. When I feel like walking, I sit down. When I feel like sitting down, I lie down. And when I feel like getting up, I lie there until the feeling goes away. Don't allow that to happen in your spiritual life. Oh, I feel it going to church. No, 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 I'm not going to go to church. Oh, I'm going to stay here. Don't lay there until it goes away. Oh, God, I feel like you're calling me to, to be reading my Bible. I got that feeling zero. Oh, uh, just let it go away. Don't allow that to happen in your walk with the Lord. Abs- exercise, is this important? Yeah, it's important. Physical body, you're going to be more healthy in physical body. But godliness has value for, for everything. Holding promise for both this life and for the life to come. See, if an Olympic athlete will train for years, you ever do any study about Olympic athletes, whether they're runners or they're swimmers or whatever it is, they put in hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours to hopefully make it to the Olympics, to hopefully win maybe a gold or a silver or bronze, and most of them don't, but they put in all this time and effort to get a medal that they hang on the wall or put in a cabinet that will get dusty. You know, some of us, I think, need to get more concerned about how much we're going to God than we are going to the gym. If some of us would work as hard about our walk with God as we do about tracking calories and knowing my food intake, if some of us would get more concerned about my time with God than is my hair look right or my makeup look right, do I have enough muscles, am I benching enough weight, can I run a marathon, can I not run a marathon? If some of us would take that kind of effort that we put into this physical body and we put into our walk with God, how different would life be? That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, you guys are so stinking concerned about what your physical body looks like. Stop it and get concerned about what your heart looks like with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, after Father's warning and Father's wisdom, he talks about the Father's work. 1 Timothy 4, verse 9. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. 
Paul's talking about his work here, which is our work. He says, we labor and strive, which actually means we toil to the point of exhaustion. We toil to the point of exhaustion for the souls and salvation for other people. When's the last time you've been so exhausted because you're concerned about your friend or your neighbor or your mom or your dad or your whoever it is that you're like, I want them to embrace Jesus. When's the last time you've been so worn out because you're so exhausted? The word actually means we agonize. It's a wrestling term. We're wrestling. Here's a picture of a man really working with the idea of being ungodly, and we work at it to the point of exhaustion. Our commitment's not to physical things, but to eternal things is what Paul's pointing us towards. See, if you live long enough, the time will come when the physical things won't mean anything to you. I've done a lot of hospital visits in those last days of people. Can't tell you I ever walked into one and someone said, man, Brian, I got to go to the gym again. Can't tell you I ever walked into one and someone said, man, my money in my bank, Brian, I'm so concerned about it. Can't tell you I ever walked in and someone said, hey, Brian, my car, my car, will you make sure my car is okay? When we get to the end of the line, I'll tell you what you're concerned about. Am I ready to be with Jesus? Am I ready to be with Jesus? See, you may have the strongest, healthiest, best-looking body. You may have all the stuff this world has to offer. But in the end, none of it's going to matter, church. None of it's going to matter. And one of the hardest things as a preacher, when you're making that hospital visit, or you come along someone's bedside as they're ending life, and they question and go, I'm not really sure where my salvation is at. I'm not really sure. We uh, have a call from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we watch out for the work of Satan. And we be on guard for it. We keep our eyes wide open while we're pointing people towards Jesus. In verse 10, he says, that some, some people use this verse for kind of the ideal universalism that everyone will be saved, but that's not what the verse is about. When he talks about uh, look, look at verse 10. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe. Some people say, well, he saves all people. No, he is the Savior of all people, but you must believe. It's kind of like this. If we were to get over to Lexington Airport and say, I'm going to take a trip to, to Hawaii, that trip could be offered to every single one of us in this room. Matter of fact, that trip is available. I don't know if you could leave from Lexington. You may have to leave from Cincinnati or Louisville or wherever to get there. But that trip is available. That, that flight is available for us to get on a plane and for us to go to Hawaii or go to Miami or go to the beaches of Florida or go to California or fly across the country. That is available to every single one of us. And any of us can go on that flight as long as we're willing to buy the ticket. As long as you're willing to shell out the $500, the $700, the $1,000, or $1,500, whatever that plane ticket is, you can get on a plane and you can go to that destination that you so desires. But you must make the choice. Am I going to lay down the money or not? Am I going to pull out the credit card or not? Am I going to get online and hit buy now? We have to make the choice. Am I going to do that? See, if you want to get on board this morning to glory, verse 10 says, that's for everybody. 
He died to save this world, but the thing is, is we have to make the choice to say, I choose him as well. I make that choice. All you need is Jesus. That he, he is the choice. And here's the cool thing is we just have to accept the gift, but he's already paid the price. He's already paid that price for you and me. We had some people this last Sunday evening really come to realization of this great gift. Believed in Jesus for some time, but they've never surrendered fully. They said, you know, I've just never completely got to this step. And last Sunday with their growth group, they celebrated crossing that line and saying, you know what, I fully surrender to Jesus. I want you to catch this video.